I think maybe on Resurrection Sunday, Easter, that the evening we'll talk about what happens uh, for a Christian at the moment of their death. This is not going to be a sermon where I present um, one position and really argue for it or prove it from Scripture because Scripture does not get real emphatic about this. And so I'm going to present a lesson with the three options. How about that? These are the three dominant options. This, is not, this doesn't include the Catholic thing of purgatory stuff. I just didn't even put that in there. But um, I'm curious. I've always been curious about what happens the moment a Christian dies. And I've really grappled with this a lot. And we serve a God who didn't exactly find that as compelling as I do. He just didn't. He didn't seem to be concerned about us knowing that real clearly. And apparently it's not one of those important things. So it's not necessary for you to have this straight in your head. So I want to say two things to be careful about. These are options and no one of them is the one that you run with and critique the others. I mean, it's just you don't do that. Secondly, I'm going to tell you what my view is and most of you are going to disagree with it. That's okay. I don't want to debate you on this. I'm, I don't want to argue with anybody. And that second Sunday share, when they get together next Sunday, or the, yeah, next Sunday and they talk about this, they're going to hammer this out with each other, and I don't want to know anything about it. I don't want to hear anything about it. I'm just telling you what the options are. Um, the sure thing is this. Here's what we know for sure. Unless Christ returns, you will die. Right? Hebrews 9, 27 is appointed from people to die and after that face judgment. Right? We all agree? Right? I don't care if you agree or not. It's the truth. You're going to die. Right? Second, we'll face judgment. Some form of answering for how we live this life. You are going to face some kind of judgment. Um, and then finally, there is a resurrection. There is a day coming when the dead, the dead will rise to live. So we know these things, but the placing of these things and exactly how they go isn't clear. So view number one, here we go. View number one is the righteous person who dies goes immediately to heaven. And the wicked person who dies goes immediately to hell. Um, in this case, apparently, judgment is immediately at death. For each person, you are judged the moment you die. And uh, the sentencing is immediate. This is faithful to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. It's appointed for people. A man wants to die, and after that faces judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time and not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. So you will do this. 2 Timothy 4.8 is another one. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous will, Lord will, George, uh, will award me on that day. Uh, is that his death day or the day Jesus returns? Not only to me, but all those, all those who have longed for his appearing. Um, it... Um, it seems to make sense of what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1. To me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ. It sounds like when he dies, he's immediately in the presence of Christ. That's what it most obviously sounds like to me. Like Paul's saying, you know, 
today I could be with Jesus or with you, and I'd really like to be with Jesus, right? Um, and there's a couple of verses. The, the battlefield for all of this is 1 Thessalonians 4, I think, which George just read. And here's what it starts. For since we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Sounds like when Jesus comes, he's going to bring those saints who've already died with him, so they must be with him now. That's one reading of 1 Thessalonians 4. So then what's the return of Jesus for? And what's resurrection for? It would seem that resurrection is only for those who are alive when he comes back. But it doesn't make sense of some of the things Jesus says, like in John 5, 28 and 29, right? When um, Jesus says, out of the grave will come the people he will, he will uh, judge. 1 Thessalonians 4 that we'll look at here in just a little bit seems to be a problem for this view in its entirety. And then you have the great rich man and Lazarus story. I'll deal with that in a little bit too. But here, this, this is the problems with view number one. But there are many people who hold it. I've been to a lot of funerals where they hold this view. Grandpa's up in heaven playing golf right now. Or fishing with his fishing buddies right now. Uh, or running around with, his, with grandma right now. Right? They're, they're having this reunion. And, um, I, can't, I don't hold this view, but I, you know, if somebody wants to, I don't guess it hurts anything. Um, I noticed there was a card read this morning that sounded like that. I don't know. You know, when you read cards, theology comes through. And, and we read one like that, and it's, I have no problem with somebody feeling that way. It's not the view I hold, as I said, but it, it's there. View number two. The righteous are ushered into paradise, a conscious time of bliss while awaiting the resurrection. The wicked, on the other hand, are ushered into a hell-like realm of conscious torment while awaiting resurrection. Then when Jesus comes, we'll all be resurrected and judged. The righteous go to heaven, the wicked go to hell, right? Uh, this, this view gives great respect to the judgment. Um, and if you, the best judgment scene story we have is Matthew 25 where everybody is gathered and they're split from what? Right to the left or the, the goats and the sheep, right? Everybody's together and the judgment is very public. It's not at death. You sneak into one side or the other. It's very public, right? Uh, so that seems to give some credence to that. The return of Christ is given its full integrity too. It seems to me Scripture would say to us, whatever the end time is, what triggers it all is the return of Jesus. That's when everything starts again. Uh, to put judgment before he returns seems a little strange, but, but it does at least do that. Now, um, we'll all go to heaven together. The rich man and Lazarus story is the heart of this. Now, the only problem with that is it describes Hades as hell. And Hades is not hell. Um, it's the state of the dead, both righteous and unrighteous. Uh, so th there's some things going on in the rich man and Lazarus story that are not true to the nature of what heaven and hell are like, or even the waiting place is supposed to be like. But it is a story. I think it's a parable, 
I think it's a parable not meant to talk about the afterlife. It's meant to talk only except for the scene that things go like this in the afterlife. You will be judged and things can flip. Um, but you have to decide what you think about that rich man Lazarus story. It seems to make the best sense of the thief on the cross too, right? Um, because there's that paradise word. But there's two kinds of judgment here. You're judged at death already. So Jesus doesn't have to come back for this judgment to take place. You are judged at death. You go to one place or the other, and there's a judgment. And then there's a second judgment of sentencing when Jesus comes back. So that would be kind of like, that's not necessarily the way Matthew 25 describes it. Um, because why does he sit there and put them in goats and, when they've already been put in that category? Uh, view number three. The souls of both the righteous and the wicked are sleeping unconsciously in the realm of the dead. Hades or Sheol. That is not hell. When you see Hades, when you see Sheol, it's not hell. It's the state of the dead. It's what happens when you die. And they just wait there in this sleeping state until Jesus returns. And when Jesus returns, the trigger hits, right? The righteous will enter the heavenly realm. The wicked will enter uh, eternal damnation in hell. It seems to give judgment day its greatest due. That is when we all find out together, publicly, like Matthew 25 describes it. And again, that's a parable too. But it just seems to give this understanding of that. Um, it understands sleeping. And we're going to look at this passage in a minute. For years, people have said sleeping is referring to your physical body. I don't think that's true. I think sleeping is your spiritual soul. That's my opinion. We'll look at it in a minute. This is my position right here, okay? So, and again, that has no credence for you. And don't attack me afterwards. No rocks, no tomatoes. Because it doesn't really matter. We'll talk about that in a minute. But, but, but that sleeping language that is Old Testament and new. And we'll look at it in one passage here in just a second. Wherever the dead go, they will always be in the presence of God. He doesn't leave or forsake the believer. So I don't know where the sleeping soul goes, but God's taking care of that person. The return of Christ triggers everything. All believers will enter heaven together. Hebrews, 9, Hebrews chapter 11, 29, 30 may say that. And so then we go to 1 Thessalonians 4. All right. This to me is clear propositional teaching. And so this is like, if this is the clearest expression, this is the passage we need to go to. And let me explain my view of this, and then, and then you can have it for what you want. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. Now remember, Paul's already been in this town. He was kind of run out of town quick, so he didn't get to teach everything. He taught a little bit about this, but they were getting all uptight. He taught just enough for them to feel very anxious about some loved ones who died. And they're thinking, we have to be alive when Jesus comes back. And they're all uptight about this, right? And so Paul has to write a letter back to them and say, hey, I don't want you to, I don't want you to have to struggle with this ignorance. Let me tell you some things um, about those who are asleep. Who is that? 
What is being asleep? You have to think about that. You not that you don't grieve as those or others who have no hope. I don't want you to, to be worried about what other people would be worried about. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Christ Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. There's two ways to understand this, and uh, no one agrees. Not everybody agrees. It sounds to me like when Je- this, this makes it sound like when Jesus does come, he will bring those who've fallen asleep with him. Well, then who's down on earth to rise up to meet him in the air? Who is that? You got two groups here. And we always think, you know, they're asleep, they're physically dead. But then look at what he says, dead in Christ will rise first. He doesn't call them the asleep in Christ. He calls them the dead in Christ who rise first. Who are the asleep and who are the dead in Christ? Are they the same? He's just using different words. That seems a little confusing when it's in the same passage, right? So you you gotta figure out, I think this is a statement that he says, this is the truth, now let me unpack it. This one verse right here is describing what happens. We believe Jesus died, he rose again, and he is going to, right, right through, through Jesus, God's going to bring with him those who've fallen asleep. And then he tells us exactly what it's going to look like. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. So Jesus said it. Paul is using a word, the words from Jesus. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who've fallen asleep. We will not meet Jesus before they do. That seems to be a big deal to people. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and the voice of the archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them to meet the clouds, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. Doesn't say where they go from there, and that's beyond our scope. So here's what I think First Thessalonians 4 is saying. <laughs> Either this could, all three theories, y'all, all three views use this passage, right? They can all look at it as they want to. You've got to decide what you think. Now, let me just make a, a commercial. Let me just say, here's what I think happens. All right, so wherever the soul of the believer is, asleep in the Lord, Revelation 14, 13, they will rest from their labors, their deeds will follow them. They are in the Lord's care somewhere. And when Jesus comes, he's going to bring those souls with him. When he comes down here, that soul is going to reunite with the resurrected body right here in the presence of Jesus. It's sleeping right now, and wherever it goes, it's going to then meet with the body of the resurrected body, and it's going to form that new. Now, those who are alive, not only are, are those who are alive going to meet him in the air, but as they're going, we learn from 1 Corinthians 15, that body that we have, let's just hope that we're alive when he comes, okay? Let's just say that. We're going to be alive when he comes. And when we meet them in the air, it's not going to be this body that meets him. 
You remember he says in 1 Corinthians 15, this body will be transformed. It will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. This, this body changes. Now there's some things that stay the same. Something stays the same. But a lot of things change. You become equipped for eternity on that journey between where we are right now and with gravity and we meet the Lord in the air. And that's when we go to be with the Lord in the air and, and go from there wherever Jesus goes. Strange, isn't it? And then you wonder, and I think the Thessalonians did too, they, they, were, they were enamored with this stuff, and so they write Paul. After he writes this letter to them, they said, we still got more questions, and he writes 2 Thessalonians, and the first order of business, you know what he does, the first thing he does in 2 Thessalonians? Let me tell you then what happens to the wicked on that day. Next screen. Second Thessalonians, I say, that's supposed to be 2 Thessalonians 1. This is evidence. This is right at the beginning. He says, let me clear this up first. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So here we are again at that scene. He takes them back to 1 Thessalonians 4 and he continues. Keep going. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. This is happening at the same time that this other stuff with the righteous is happening. It's taking place on that day, the same thing. And then what will happen to them? They will suffer a punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. While all this wonderful stuff is happening, there's some awful bad stuff happening as well as the wicked righteous, or wicked, the wicked dead and the wicked alive face their eternity too. View number one, you just automatically go where we're all going to go. View number two, yeah, thank you for putting the two up there. Um, view number two, there's some kind of waiting place but it's already a reward or a punishment. It's already a judgment of some kind. Or view number three, very similar to view number two, except we all are just asleep waiting for Jesus to trigger the end time stuff. Okay, don't fight over these. Don't fuss. Let's not split and make three churches over this, okay? Because it just isn't worth it. It just isn't worth it. You cannot be so totally dogmatic about this. There are some things we don't have to fight about, and we can all just agree. But, but I will say this. Regardless of what you think about these views, we will be judged for how we live this life right now. This is the standard he uses. Regardless of what happens the moment you die, it's how you live right now that shapes that, right? Right? How you live now, that's absolute. So you better, all the stuff we said tonight, you can say, well, what are you saying? Well, okay, it gives the greatest import to how you live. All three views tell you, be careful how you live. Number two, Christians are always taken care of. And in the presence of God at all times, he never leaves or forsakes us. In this life, in the moment of our death, and wherever we go after that, we are escorted by our Creator. 
we're never out of his sight. We're never out of his care, regardless of what that ends up being. And number three, at some time, those who don't know God and obey not the gospel will experience hell. There's a message about hell coming soon, but let me tell you the scariest thing about it. Can I scare you for a minute? I just want to scare the living daylights out of you, right? I hear every once in a while people talking about they went through hell on earth. They'll say that very casually. No one has ever gone through hell on earth. No one. I don't care how bad of an experience you had, whether it's abuse or whether it's neglect or a bad marriage or whatever, and it can make you feel very awful and it can make you feel hopeless. And, but let me tell you, you've never, ever been where the goodness of God is not. You've never been there. Even those who are wicked and evil, the sun comes on them and the rain falls on them. God has his common grace that gives to everybody. You can hate God and shake your fist at him and disobey him, but you know what? He's going to love you anyway, and he's going to, just by virtue of his existence, you are going to receive the byproducts of a good God. Everybody does. There's nobody outside that scope, but there's coming a day. When he ushers you into a realm where he does not hear your prayers, he is not there, and you can't even get a radiated secondary goodness from God because he doesn't let it go there. You're going to go to a place where when you pray, nobody listens, and you, you go to a place where there's no goodness, there's nothing good, and there's nothing wholesome that happens. It's a total existence away from any goodness that flows from God, even by reflection. It's called hell. And no one has ever experienced that. Don't even talk about the Jews in World War II. Not even there. God was with them. And in every bad thing you've ever experienced, there's some good to be had there. And God's residue, just somewhere in the atmosphere, is floating toward you. But there's coming a time when God puts you in a place where absolutely nothing good exists. And I don't know if you want to describe it as hellfire or darkness, gnashing of teeth, the worms never die, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't matter. Pick the worst thing you can imagine. And there's nobody to listen to you and no secondary goodness that flows to you that's hell and you vote with your feet you vote with your life if you say God I'm so sick of you having a say in my life I just assume you just leave me alone and God just says your wish is my command but you've never experienced anything like that on this earth and he doesn't want you there so even the unbeliever gets the common grace of God that comes to all in the hopes that they will recognize that is from God and they will respond with repentance. But in the next life, after you've made your choice, he'll give you exactly what you want. And I hope to goodness you choose better in the next few minutes. You do not want an existence like that. And he's done everything he can to help you avoid it. So regardless of what happens after you die, just make sure you're right with God. And then whatever happens, and then you know what? 
if I'm a soul sleep guy and I find out that I'm in, I'm in the bliss of Abraham's bosom and we're hanging out and we're playing golf with people, I'll just count that as a plus. I'll let God do whatever he wants. Take me wherever you want. Give me a good book. I don't really like golfing. I don't care what he does as long as he's in charge of me. But I get to decide that by how I live this life, and so do you. And so I'm saying to you, you get another chance tonight. And if there's anyone in here who just, for whatever reason, you've never made that choice, please, 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 if you were my worst enemy, I would tell you, don't choose that. Choose God. And you have another chance to do that now as we stand and as we sing together.